Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles at this time to the book of 2 Timothy. And if you're visiting, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. We are studying end times over the past few weeks. And we are working on the subject matter now of looking at the matter of how close are we to the rapture. Here it is. How close are we to the rapture? And as I've stated, I hope you're finding this subject matter interesting. I hope you find you're challenged by this. And I hope it's making you prepared. If you haven't been with us, the rapture is the event where Jesus Christ is going to come back for his church and meet them in the air. We did some very in-depth studies on that. And I would encourage you, whether it's listening to our podcast or going back to our YouTube videos, please go in and look at that because I'm not going to repeat that material. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. I believe it's very doctrinal. I believe it's biblically based. And you can say that ever since Jesus Christ was ascended into heaven, the church has been looking for him to return. Jesus Christ did come once and he proclaimed a message. He proclaimed a message that, that is one that we have to be faithful to and I can believe that is the only reason that he hasn't, the main reason he hasn't come back, is that he wants more and more people to hear the gospel message. That, that man's a sinner, that you can't fix your problem of sin, that you will die because of sin, that you will be sent to an incredible place called hell if you do not believe in the gospel. Incredibly, I was going through some statistics in preparation for one part of my sermon this week, and it stated how... It's an incredible percentage, and I can't remember right now. It might be like 80%, 90% of people will attend church this weekend, and they will not hear the words hell or sin, anything along those lines. And they will definitely rarely hear the word repent. Because most churches don't want to do that today because they're more concerned about making you feel comfortable. And I want to make you feel comfortable, but I also want to make you very clear that you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You have to be born again. You have to repent from your sins. You have to believe there's only one way. You cannot become a believer in Jesus Christ and say, well, it's perfectly acceptable that you become a, a Muslim or a Buddhist and you incorporate that into your Christianity. You cannot accept any other way. And, and you have to be passionate about this. Well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ ascended And now we're waiting for him to come back. And we're waiting and waiting, and it seems like it's never going to happen, and it's unlikely to happen today. And then, you know, I preach this, and we talk about this, and it doesn't happen, and it just continues on, and perhaps you become a little numb to it. But my concern always is that one day it will happen. And when that does happen, will you be prepared? And if it doesn't happen, perhaps like Swanee Curry, who if you would have read... The email from Wes Tabor said this week, nobody expected her to die this week. But God took her. And I've seen too many people unexpectedly taken. And I don't know when you will be taken. You just need to be prepared. God wants us to live with that expectation. God wants us to live with the expectation that we can be facing him at any time, any moment, and especially with the expectation of the rapture. The return of Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's a great expectation. Charles Dickens wrote a book called Great Expectations. I don't know if anybody ever read it, 
Someone read it once and they said, ah, it's no big deal. <laughs> it's a book of great expectation stuff. Okay? Jesus Christ, his return is a book of, is a, is a message of great expectations. Did you hear about the pastor that had great expectations for great jokes? People always thought his jokes were going to be good, but he could never deliver. I guess he, was, he, he, he didn't hear, well, if you have heard about him, you know part of his problem was he was a postman. He was a delivery man before, but he could never deliver the mail on time. He had a delivery problem, and then now he's a pastor. And delivery problem, that delivery problem, okay. <laughs> All right, turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. The Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life. And one thing I want you to be cognizant about is this little section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul really sums up his life and is a model for you and for me when he says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. His departure is his death. It's about 65 to 67 A.D. Nero has captured him. He thinks it's a great thing that he can appease people. It's true. He fiddled while Rome burned. He blamed the Christians. He's rounded up the Apostle Paul. He has Paul in a prison, and he's going to have him executed. Paul knows that this time, somehow, someway, God has led him to understand you're not getting out of this. You're going to die. And he says... I've really wasted my life. I sacrificed too much. I gave too much. I should have done more entertaining of myself. No, he says, verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. That's the line I want you all to underline. I want you to highlight it if you've got one of those electronic Bibles. You need to understand he, love. Love is an action, but it's a passionate action. And when you love someone, you make effort towards them. When you love something, you make effort towards it. You look at the things that you love. You look at the things, and we've talked about this in life that there are all things that we want to love to do, we like to do, we enjoy doing. But God wants us to love his appearing. And I know, and I've said it before, and I want to make it clear, you might all want to do something in life. You might want to get married, have kids, watch your kids grow up, watch your grandkids grow up, build your career, build your business. But God wants you to love the return of Jesus Christ and have it as a priority. It's not that you can't do the other things, but this has got to be driving you. This has to be. You act toward what you love, and I want to ask you right now, what do you love? You look at the last week. What do you love? Because if you love God, you look for the return of Jesus Christ. You're in his word. You're witnessing. You're bold. You're sharing the gospel because you know that Jesus is returning. You know that he's coming back, and you know if he came back today, the person that you're talking to would not go to heaven if they're an unbeliever. And you want to share them with them because you know what? It is not rude to say, listen, you need to come to faith. You need to understand the gospel. It is not rude to tell someone where they're attending church is wrong. Now, when I say that, I'm saying it in the sense of a loving and kind and gracious way. I'm not just saying be rude to them in any sense or form of that. But my goodness, 
if somebody is attending a church where they have wrong doctrine, they are not going to get to heaven if they believe that wrong doctrine. And do you believe that? Because it's very clear from the Bible, I've been telling people a lot, read the book of Galatians. You read the book of Galatians, and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church and I got to tell you, this is just like a real-life example because in the past two weeks I've had this. Somebody recently told me, why can't we from different Christian groups all get along? We're all on the same team, aren't we? And I had to say, no, we're not. Because you look at the Apostle Paul, and I said, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Galatia when they've got pagans all around them. The church at Galatia was a church that believed that man was a sinner. They believed that Jesus was God in man. They believed that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. They believed that Jesus rose again, but they did not believe in faith alone. One little thing. Paul says, I wish that you had your male private parts cut off. I wish that you, anybody that preaches this message would understand you're going to hell. Paul, you don't understand church growth. You don't understand how we're fighting a, a society that is crumbling and it's horrible and, and you've got the Gauls and you've got these pagans all around you. And, and Paul, you're upsetting the local church when, when all they're trying to do is make society better. Paul says, no, you don't understand. The number one thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith alone in Christ alone. And I've been telling my soccer kids, I've been coaching back soccer, and I've been telling them, you have to understand, we're part of the Protestant movement, the, the protesters, that when we said it was by faith alone, the people who we were protesting against said, fine, you want to hold to that? We'll burn you alive. We'll skin you alive. I think Wayne and Joanne Weaver went overseas, and they went to some places where the torture chambers are still there for people who said, we're going to hold the faith alone. But the people who said, no, 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 it's going to be faith plus works, faith where we baptize babies, we're, we're going to torture you. They make these incredible, horrific torture places because we're in a war, people. And so when Paul says, to all who love is appearing, I believe we love him because we know him. And, and he is so important to us. And we know this world is not the end all. And so with that understanding, I won't, don't want you to be somebody who's just, hum, okay, if Jesus Christ returns. Now, we're going through this. This is a topical study. I will try to take some tangents. I will try to make this so that you work through this um, with the idea of what, what's my main point. But... Um, the idea here is that we are trying to get you to understand why the rapture is so near. And on the back of your sermon notes are the reasons that we've already gone through. We've gone through six of them. We've, we can see that the end time events are coming together theologically. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. We see that Israel's already regathered in the land. Third, we've seen that Israel is ready to rebuild the temple. Fourth, we have seen the rebirth of the Roman Empire rising before us. We went over this last week. 
Fifth, we have seen a Western peacemaker become so commonplace in trying to make peace between Israel and the Arabs that when it happens, you don't even think anything of it anymore. And sixth, we are seeing the rise of the countries of Magog, Muslim nations that broke off from the southern part of the Soviet Union that, like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, have risen up with military might and have declared their desire to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Well, today, let's get ready for the seventh reason. This is what we're seeing. Number seven, we are seeing the apostasy of the church start. Turn in your Bibles over to, to 2 Thessalonians. You're real close to it if you're in 2 Timothy. And what we're going to look at here is a series of passages that talk about the fact that in the tribulation, that what's going to happen is the people who profess God, even the professing church, like the church at Laodicea, will still be on the earth, but they will be apostate. They will not be true believers. And so here's a passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago for a different reason. Now we're going to focus on the fact of the word apostasy. The context of this first passage is it's, it's early on in church history. The church at Thessalonica is facing persecution, but they've been lied to. What have they been lied to about? They believe they're in the tribulation, the day of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together for him. Our gathering, we believe that's the rapture. So that you may not be quickly, from your, be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is tribulation. And again, I emphasize, it is the seals, the trumpets, and the bold judgments. It is not something that you can divide up. And again, I emphasize, there is no dividing the seals, the trumpets, and bulls up where the seals are the wrath of Satan. That is an incredible lie for people who bowl to a mid-trib, pre-wrath view. There is an incredible lie that is pervading through the church today. The day of the Lord is clear. It is a long-time event. It is not just a 24-hour day event. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not here. Some of your Bibles have it in italicized as a future event. But if you're going to be reciprocal, you're going to take the verb in verse 2 because it's not repeated in verse 3. And in Greek, you can do that. But for whatever reason, some of the translators have said, we're going to make this future tense. But the very same verb that was used in verse 2 needs to be used in verse 3 if you're going to do that. So he says, it is not here. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not here unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy, the departure from the faith. Now, there are some people who want to hold that the Apostle Paul has just said the departure is the rapture here. And that's a possibility. But I don't think he's talking about that because the, I think the main use of this word is a departure from the faith. And I also believe the context or the, 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 the description here fits better with the idea of the fact that we're talking about events within the tribulation. Let me explain. 
He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not here unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, which is the Antichrist, is unveiled. The man of destruction who opposes himself and exalts himself above every so-called God, uh, God or object of worship. All right. This is not dealing with precursors. This is not like saying the apostasy has to fir- happen first and then the day of the Lord starts. This is... I get hard grammatically, but what this is like saying is you're not in the day of the Lord because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would have seen the apostasy occur and then the man of lawlessness be revealed. Let me use this as an illustration. If you were to come to our church at 1040, if you were to come to our church at 1040 and Jason and the band were practicing, has our church service started? The answer is no. If someone were to say to you, when does the church service start? Well, when the announcements start. The uh, church has not started unless you heard the announcements first and then the video challenge is given. What the Apostle Paul is doing is something very similar. He's trying to say, look, you're not in the day of the Lord because this event would have happened first. All right, well, we know also, too, that the Antich- what officially kicks it off is the Antichrist signs that peace treaty, which I think is part of the revealing. I think he's letting us know how this will go hand-in-hand, hand, the apostasy and the unveiling of the Antichrist. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Apostasy is departure from doctrine. And I believe the Apostle Paul is saying this is a key thing that's going to happen and you say, wait, Mike, the, the church is supposed to be raptured. It's going to be gone. But the point that I am telling you is when the church gets raptured, there's going to be churches like Laodicea, very pervasive. And churches in mass are going to be left behind. And large churches all across the world are going to be left behind. And when they are challenged with the fact, hey, what happened to those people that were taken off this earth? They were raptured. Why are you not taken? I believe they are going to say, well, that rapture was like a judgment. It wasn't for us. And they will quickly turn their allegiance to the Antichrist. You say, is this taught elsewhere? Absolutely. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. From Matthew chapter 24, you see when Jesus is talking about the birth pangs, and you see him talking about the, the, what I believe is to be the signs of his return, and I believe when you can debate, are the birth pangs before the tribulation, or are they in the tribulation, I think it becomes really clear when you get at least down to verse 9, the Apostle Paul is talking about events within the tribulation. So you look at verse 8, and he says this. Revelation, I mean, Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. He goes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you what? To tribulation. Tribulation, the day of the Lord, the book of Revelation. That's the essence. They will deliver you, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Who are the followers of God, the followers of Jesus? Well, we often say this is for the Jews, right, primarily. But I think also you see this. At that time, verse 10, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. What do you mean, fall away? To go apostate. That's what he's talking about. They will fall away. You don't fall away if you've never been part of a, you join something. You only fall away if you join something and all of a sudden you leave it. 
And so what I believe is he's saying many are going to go apostate. I'm not going to have you turn over to, um, what was it, passage? Um, passage in 1 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy, um, back where you just were, 2 Timothy famous passage that is more descriptive of our age, but it's believed that it, it will carry into the end times. This is a famous passage that you all know. It's a passage that you, you probably will you hear about um, the description of, of how things are getting worse. The world's getting worse. And you hear this passage where the Apostle Paul says this, verse 3, I mean chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, un unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, when we studied this, we said the last days are the entire period from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, but universally it's believed that as we get closer to the end these things will become more pronounced and that's what i believe we're watching these things are becoming more pronounced but keep on going verse five holding to a form of godliness what do you mean holding to a form of godliness holding to a form of godliness although they've denied its power avoid such men as these who are these people these are people who profess to be christians but aren't they hold to a form of it. And the Apostle Paul goes on to describe how these are men who enter into households, verse 6, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and what? Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so I believe this is descriptive of the end. As we get closer and closer, it becomes more and more pronounced. You've got these spiritual leaders who aren't really saved. So... We are seeing the apostasy of the church start. And when we go into the end times, it's not going to be all of a sudden, now we go apostate. I think that's the thing that theologians that hold to this pre-trib, our view uh, of, of the understanding, are like saying, wow, we're seeing this now. And that's what I want to say. We're seeing this now. And here's where I want to intersect it with modern common uh, modern um, events back in the 1970s churches that were preaching the bible exploded they exploded you had john MacArthur's church go to 8,000. you had indian hills where i was a pastor I'd go to 2500 you had church churches mega churches go all over the country go into the thousands and even though the average church in America has always been less than 100, these churches got to become very prominent. And what happened is it became an incredible pressure for your church to become big like theirs. And out of this grew, grew things like the Saddleback Church and, and Robert Schuller's church, the Tower of Power, the Crystal Cathedral. Churches got to grow more and more and more. And at the same time, what happened was you had a growth of one thing. You had a false doctrine of what's called easy believism. And easy believism was when John MacArthur wrote his book, Gospel According to Jesus, back in the middle of the 80s, as a, as a refutation of the, fact that, of, of the fact that churches were growing, but they weren't giving people the gospel. 
And they were just happy that if anybody could say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and it didn't matter if their life changed or it didn't matter if they had doctrine, that they would say, oh, you're definitely a believer. Just keep coming to our church. And so when he wrote that book, Gospel According to Jesus, it became something that he started not getting invited to Bible camps or Bible um, um, conferences because it was so offensive. And, and yet it was true. And I'd encourage you to read that book because it just goes through what the gospel is. I got to tell you, personally, I've been here 24 years, a pastor, and I remember coming into our area and there were two things that have, have lifelong hit, hit me, greatly, greatly impact me. I tell you guys, I think about this all the time. 20 years ago, I met a pastor from our area, an associate pastor, and he was talking to me um, because he was buying my Honda. If anybody remembers my Honda Accord, I was selling my Honda Accord, and he was buying it, and he comes up, and he tells me he's a pastor, he, he attends a lo another local church, but it's a really big church, and we started talking about how they go around and they witness and they evangelize people in the area. And, and I was very concerned about this easy believism, and I said, wait a second, do you mean to tell me that if you go to that house right across the street from our church and you witness to somebody, and that person comes to your church and you baptize them that Sunday, but they never come to church again for 40, 50 years until the day they die, you would count them as a Christian and you would tell them they were a Christian? He said, absolutely we would. And I thought to myself, how many people are living with that lie? Because the Bible talks about a changed life, people. And, and you've got to be saved, you've got to be born again. It's by faith, right? But the person that's born again lives differently. You need to live differently if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Not because it earns your salvation, but because it's a product of it. And so, the other thing, I can't tell you, I still have nightmares about this. We had a woman who came to our church. She regularly came to our church, but her husband dropped her off. This was 20 years ago. She regularly came to church. Her husband dropped her off for Sunday school. And then he went to the bars. He had been going to the bars every Sunday morning for... 20, 30 years. He was one of the worst drunks around. And one day, about, about four or five years in, after I got to meet this lady, got to know her, um, so this is now, again, like this is probably about my, my fourth, fifth year at the church, I get this call. I get rushed off to the emergency room because her husband is dying. And this man is on a, on a, on a gurney. I get rushed into the emergency room because the, he want, she wants me to talk to him before he dies because his stomach has broken up because of the alcohol and his stomach is being held together by rubber bands. And I come into him and I start sharing with him and, I, and the doctors have shared that if you continue to drink, you will die within the year. And I said, you know, sir, you gotta have to understand, <laughs> this is the gospel, you need to turn your life around, you need to repent. And I still get shivers looking up at this man as he looks up to me, and he says to me, young man, you don't know I'm a Christian, and don't you ever tell me I'm not. Wow. You never come to church. You never read your Bible. You're drunk every Sunday. Okay. Well, he goes home, he drinks, and in a year he's dead. Listen, people. Easy believism is still pervasive throughout America. 
And what we are, have seen and what we are knowing about is the fact that because of that, one of the worst things that has happened is when the mega churches came on, all these other churches, all these small churches said, we will do whatever it takes to compromise to be large churches. And there was a group in Chicago called the Willow Creek Church. And I've shared this with you before, and I've been sharing this ever since I got here. Because back when I was a young man, I read this book here, Willow Creek Seeker Services, Evaluating a New Way to Do Church. This was a man's PhD paper. And he went and he evaluated this Willow Creek. Willow Creek was started in the middle 1980s by a pastor named Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was going around, and he was going from home to home. He was sharing the gospel. And guess what? People weren't getting saved. And what happened was he said, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't keep having church where I only have like 50 or 60 people. So he rents a movie theater, and all of a sudden he says, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about the Bible. We're going to make it entertaining. We're going to bring in one of the biggest, hottest rock band kind of things. We're going to start bringing in light shows. And guess what? His movie theater got packed out. And before you know it, Bill Hybels was teaching churches not only through all of America how to do church, how to grow irregardless of your theology. So it doesn't matter what theology you have, what church you have, your church can grow because he was a student of Robert Schuller, and but he never wanted to let people know that Bill, Robert Schuller was his, he was a disciple of him. And and so was the guy at Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, disciple of Schuller. And so what happens is, is not only does this now become major in America, and all the churches in America start following it, so much so that the, one of the largest churches in our area today is a Willow Creek Association church. And I talked to one of their pastors, and they said, well, we just picked the good things. And yet they st <laughs> the reality of it is, is they have 20, at, at this time, they had 20,000 people when this book was written going to their church. And they went and they did surveys and they asked the people, what gospel do you believe? Do you believe you're converted? Even though they had 20,000 people attending, they said only 80, out of that 80% were clearly non-believers. 80% were non-believers. Bill Hybels was, got to be really well known for the fact that he was an effective speaker. He told good jokes. He told famous stories. But he lied. Because when he told his stories, if he had a fender bender, he would tell the story as a six-car pileup. But his stories were enthralling. His stories were, were, were enticing. And the church grew. And other churches have grown, and they've followed the suit because you learn this is the way you do it. This is the way you grow. But what happens is, is you have all these people who aren't converted. And when I warned about this in the, in the 90s, and the early 2000s, it was in the middle 2000s that Willow Creek issued a statement. We realized people really aren't growing at our church because we're not using the Bible and we repent. And it was, became very famous, this repentance that they sent out. But then the reality of it is that they never changed. And, the, and Bill Hybels never changed. And I can say it now publicly even more so. Many of you know that he had to resign in disgrace because of his sexual indiscretions. And yet when they, when they went to replace him, they put a woman as the 
the head pastor of Willow Creek, even though the Bible is very clear. And I don't want to be mean to women, but the Bible is very clear who should be a pastor. And, and, and so much so that one of the largest churches in our area just six months ago had a singles event. They invited our church and I said, well, we could send our singles, but who's going to speak? Because I'm concerned about who you listen to, even if it's at another church. And they were bringing in a woman pastor from Willow Creek. And I said, we can't have our people go to that. And the response was dead silence. My point is, what's going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to return for the church. What's going to happen in these churches all across America, all across the world, because it, it's pervasive now all through the world. We have a missionary, Steve Van Horn, who's trying to reach Africa because it's so pervasive, this easy believism, this health, wealth, and prosperity, that it's greatly impacted the churches in Africa. I believe what's going to happen is that all of a sudden Jesus Christ is going to come back and, and, and the church is going to be raptured, the true church, but majority of these churches are going to be left behind. And, and who's going to miss a church of 100 people when the church of 3,000, the church of 4,000, the church of 10,000 is still meeting? And, you know, and when it tells us in 2 Thessalonians that there's a lie that goes out and the Antichrist has this lie go out and God lets it be blessed, the idea is, is it's a judgment upon the world, and I believe it's a judgment upon the world to believe in the Antichrist and what he's saying, and the fact that he's going to say, look, this rapture was really nothing. Look, we're all still here. So when the apostle Paul says, look, the apostasy comes first, I believe it's going to be a mass alliance for the professing church to say, we're going to follow this Antichrist. And so I think we're seeing that now. I think... It's not going to happen overnight in the sense that all of a sudden it occurs. It's really been happening since the 70s and the 80s, especially in America. You've obviously had apostate churches all throughout church history, all 2,000 years. But what we're seeing now is just incredible, people. It's absolutely pervasive. You go into the bookstores. You, 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 you see that there's very few theology books. And when you do try to raise the question, how many of you remember a couple... 10, 15 years ago, there was a great book that went across America. It was called The Prayer of Jabez. It was a book that all these Christians were reading, and, and it was all about how to pray. And it was filled with false theology. And if you tried to stand up and say, hey, you shouldn't read The Prayer of Jabez, that's a false book. It was like screamed out against you. How dare you? How dare you go against um, this wonderful book on how to pray? But it was ridiculous. It's no different than there's the book called The Harbinger. If anybody remembers that, when the twin towers fell down, somebody wrote this book that the, it was all predicted in Isaiah chapter 11. Well, that was a bunch of hooey. But again, this speaker is so popular. He's on still the national councils of, of churches, and he's getting so much prominence. My whole point is, as people, we're seeing an apostate church. And I don't want to be like, oh, just wringing our hands like we're the only ones who got truth. I mean, I can go to so many churches, smaller churches that proclaim the truth. But I'm telling you, often what you have to do to be large today, you have to compromise. And, and, and they do. And, and, and yet, also, small churches can compromise too. And that's why we want to make sure we stay faithful. All right, I'll just do one more. We now have weapons of mass destruction. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. 
In Revelation chapter 6, it begins the seals of the seals and the trumpet bowl judgments. When you look at the fact that what you have, what you have in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, you have one-fourth of the world die. Look at verse 8. I looked and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. As the first series of judgments come, one-fourth of the earth gets killed. Then when you go over to chapter 9 with the trumpet judgments, verse 18, it says, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by fire and smoke and brimstone, which proceed out of their mouths. And then when you go back to Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking about the fact that in the tribulation, everybody would have died by the end unless he comes back. You have almost the entire world, which is now 7 billion people. On top of that, you should just jot down Zechariah 13.8 that tells us two-thirds of every Jew that goes through the tribulation will get killed. Remember, part of the Antichrist lie is to bring all the Jewish people in the world back into Israel. The regathering that, Isaac, that Ezekiel talks about. I often think, do I know Jewish people? Do I know someone who's Jewish? And I think to myself, two out of three. That's God's word, people. Zechariah 13.8 will die in the tribulation because God says he's going to purge Israel. They're going to bring them to their knees. Well, how can all of this death occur? You can have swords. You can have guns, right? But to do it in mass the way that it's going to have to happen, it's ever been since World War II, since the development of the nuclear bomb. Yes, it's been here for a while, but... It's just something that you have to think about. When somebody read the book of Revelation in chapter, in, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, and 9, back in 90, 95 AD when John wrote this, they had to just sit there and say, oh, you've got to be kidding me. How, can, how in the world is this going to happen in seven years that the world's going to be wiped out like this? It can't happen. Well, people, it's here, and it's been here, and we should not fall asleep to it. Well, I did that quickly. Let's do another one more real quick. Revelation 11. This one, turn to Revelation 11. In Revelation 11, God sends two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation that we're going to prophesy for the second half of the tribulation. They are going to be able to give off a message that will irritate the world. Pick up in Revelation 11, verse 1. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure what? The temple of God. Remember, because we said there's got to be a temple in the end times. And the altar and those who worship it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the foot of the holy city for 42 months. Three and a half years, half the tribulation. And Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 1260 days, three and a half years, half the tribulation. These are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague so as they desire. I mean, people, it's going to be crazy. 
This is just going to be wild times. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast, which is the Antichrist, comes up out of the abyss, will make war with them, and overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, which is a whole study on its own, where also the Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. I believe I was right there. This could be in the square, right outside the wailing wall, okay? This is going to be a place where everyone's going to see their bodies, and he says, those, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, okay, those who dwell on the earth, remember we said that's a study from the book of Ezekiel, it's the unbelievers, those are the unbelievers that Revelation 3.10 talk about that are going to have to go through the trial. This is why we believe in a pre-trib rapture, but that's just a side note. Those who dwell on the earth will... Rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They're going to send presents. The whole world is going to watch it. Now, you could say, oh, there's the whole world, you know, representatives of the whole world are going to watch it. You know, like there's people from Africa and America and Europe in Jerusalem right now. No, I think this is the idea. I've always got the sense that the world is watching this, the world is rejoicing, the world is all sending presents because they're watching and they see these two bodies. Well, here's the reality. We now have the ability to worldwide view something. And we all know this, satellite TV. We've got little phones that I've been, I've been in the heart of Africa. I went through the Great Rift Valley. I went to a remote village. And one of the things that shocked me back in 1992 was that I was in this remote village and they had satellite TV back in the heart of Africa. I've been in the past two years to Siberia. You guys graciously allowed me to go there. And in Siberia, four degrees south of the, uh, the Arctic Circle, I was watching my TV on my phone and the internet. Listen, the whole world is going to watch these people. It's here, it's now. Back in 95 AD, John writes this, people would laugh are you kidding me? We don't even know what's going on in China for a year. How in the world are we going to find out what's happening in Jerusalem in, in three and a half days? Because don't, don't remember, it, was it three, three and a half days? These guys rise from the dead and the whole world's aghast. It's because we're watching them because it's all here today. And so my point is, I just want you to be cognizant. So much is coming together. I, I said that, you know, if, if we just had one of these things, like the rebuilding of the temple, the, the rise of the European common market, you look at that list, one through six that I had, that's enough to get you excited, one of them. But I think we're up to nine. People, come back next week if we're still here. I've got three, four more. The reality of it is, is we are talking about expectations. And when you expect something like the return of Jesus Christ, I want it to change you. I want it to impact you. Now, we all have expectations. And this week, it was my birthday. My point is that I got my birthday meal. I expect my birthday meal every year. If you've ever heard the joke, one time I didn't get my cake. It's just beautiful chocolate cake, and it's got this icing. Becky makes it every year. And one day she made me cheesecake and it was like ah where's my expectation right and, but when i got my cake this week it delivered it was wonderful it was out of this world okay 
My point is, when we study end times, there's an expectation that this is exciting, this is fun, this is good, but I want you guys to always think about what John did in Revelation 10, right before Revelation 11 here, is that he sees those seven judgments and he's told not to, to let them be written down, but then to take it. I don't know if he's got it on a scroll and he reads it and he eats it. And what's it do? It makes him sick. I have expectation for my meal. It doesn't make me sick. The reality of it is, is when you read Revelation, yes, it should make you sick. Because you should realize the majority of people you know today are going to die. The majority of people, wide is the path that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life. Even if we're bold and we all share faithfully, very few people are still going to come to faith. But I can tell you it's far better than staying silent. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Challenge yourself. How faithful are you? How bold are you with the gospel? If the rapture happens today, most people we know will not go in it. They'll go into judgment. They could have escaped judgment, but Jesus says men love darkness more than they love light. And today I say to anyone here that's never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, turn to the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus says to unbelievers, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come. Think about that. You cannot come. I will not let you come. I, I, I will, cannot be merciful to you. You are from below. I am from above. You are of the world. I am not of this world. I said, therefore, that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. Think about all the groups that do not believe that Jesus is God. If you abide in my word, Jesus goes on to say, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Because a believer lives a changed life. If you abide in my word... Somebody says, I'm a believer, but they live like the devil. Let's not lie to them anymore. Let's be clear with them. Let them understand the reality, the urgency. So Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Do you believe that? We believe you can physically die, but never taste the second death. That's the implication. So make sure that you believe and those around you believe. Because my expectation is that time is running out. I don't think I'm trying to force any of this. My expectation is that time is running out. Let's pray. Father, I pray that more and more here today have the same expectation and that we live accordingly. God, if we're wrong for 40 years, then we have lived 40 years of faithfulness and we've produced more than the average. Help us to be a church that lives faithfully to the end. Help us to be a church that keeps us ever before us with the urgency. I'm praying, God, that you're laying upon people to be more bold with their witnessing, more bold in their service. More times, Lord, if they choose to fast and, and pray for people, that they would do that, God. That there is a breaking of our hearts and a crying and, a, and, and tears being poured out because we know that the majority of people today do not believe, are not born again. Wide is the path of destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to the life. Even in normal circumstances, the majority of people are unbelievers. But in our day and age, when the apostate church is right before us, and so many churches have said, we don't want to preach the gospel because it offends. 
It's incomprehensible, God, that churches are saying this, but they are. They are. Help us to have a heart of compassion, not to beat people over the head, but to tell them the truth and to love them and care for them and to boldly tell them the truth that unless you are born again, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you abide in his word, you will die in your sins. And God, if there's somebody here today that needs to turn and repent after the service, may they come talk to me or Carl or someone from our church because, Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. May they believe right where they're at. And maybe all they want to do is tell me that they believe. And if you're an unbeliever today and you recognize that you're living a lie and you're living for sin, may you turn to Jesus right now and just cry out, Jesus, I've lived long enough with me on the throne. I lived too long for sin. I want to turn and repent. And in, in my power, I can't, but I need you to come into my life, God, and you be the power. You be the one that changes me. I believe that I owe for my sins. I owe with my life, but I cannot pay that penalty. And I look back to the day when Jesus paid it on the cross. And that he was no ordinary man on a cross. He was God come in the flesh. He is the great I am. I believe that that's who you are, Jesus. Amen. Come, be my savior. Be my Lord. I turn from my sin. I believe that you paid the penalty for sin. I believe that you're no longer in the grave. And I believe the only way I can have this great benefit for me is that it's by faith alone. For by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of any works. Lord, I was raised maybe in a church where I was baptized and I was taught that I was a believer. I denounce that. I denounce my church membership, even if it's attending Christian Fellowship Church for 40, 50 years. It's not my church membership. It's my relationship with you. Oh, God, be real to me. I pray, Lord, that someone's praying that now. And I pray that you're real to them as you're real to me. Be real to us, God. And may all of us learn to love you more and more and look forward to your return. In Jesus' name, amen.